Welcome to this week's Wireless Noodle. I want to talk this week about a couple of things. I promised a summary of the discussions on my panels last week at the Total Telecom Congress, and I also want to talk about sustainability. I know the subject of sustainability gets trotted out every now and then in the context of corporate social responsibility, specifically usually related to environmental impact, but I want to dig a little bit deeper. Also, I'm going to talk about a new technology company that caught my eye, a company called Stream Analyze, which does data stream analysis. The interesting unifying theme this week that cuts across all three topics is the extent to which there's a bit of a rebound to reintroducing the humanity into technology. My name is Matt Hatton. This is the Wireless Noodle, your weekly guide to the impact of disruptive new technologies on business. The good folks at Total Telecom have been tracking the tech sector for decades, and I was delighted to chair a couple of roundtables during their online event, which was held last week. And I was also delighted to accept their invitation to be one of the judges of the World Communications Awards that they organise every year. This year, almost all conferences have moved to being online only, and the shift to virtual has been an interesting one, shall we say. I tend to find the panels work pretty well, but when it comes to awards dinners, There's really no substitute for flying champagne corks and getting dressed up in my tux, but I digress. My first panel of the day looked at the $6 trillion opportunity for telecoms operators in IoT. The telco opportunity in IoT is something that I've talked a lot about in previous episodes, almost to the point where I should probably give it a rest for a bit. But the fact that I've been watching this space for a long time is part of the reason why they asked me to get involved. Also, I should note that I've really no idea where they came up with a $6 trillion figure from. Our forecast, which we ran our own webinar on the other week, had a prediction of IoT being worth a little over a trillion dollars in 2030. I guess it could be a cumulative figure over a longer period. Either way, the amounts are still staggering, so well worth digging into the opportunity. I was joined on the panel by representatives of O2 Czech Republic, Verizon, the very interesting geo platforms who I've spoken about in a previous episode, and Telia company as operators, and also by a company called MLD, which is an operational support systems vendor. I kick things off by talking about how the operator market for IoT had grown from 100 million devices to a billion over the last decade and was due to grow to 5.4 billion by 2030. But at the same time, and equally importantly, it wasn't any more a case of CSP simply piggybacking on existing infrastructure they've had to make actual investments in new technology like narrowband IoT or in software platforms. And that's not to mention the strategic forays they made into building services for end users or buying companies that provide those services. I described how IoT as related to the telecoms industry had effectively grown up. There's more at stake now than in the past when IoT really just provided a nice little additional stream of free revenue. Investments need to be made now. And of course, when you make investments, return on investment becomes critical. All valid points to introduce the topic on the panel, and I managed to make all of them within about two minutes. Brevity is the soul of good analysis. Now, I don't want to try to paraphrase the whole of the panel. More interesting is probably to pick out some of the interesting ideas that dominate it. The first is that operators, and in fact this could apply to anybody across the value chain, but operators specifically, need to find differentiators beyond the vertical. 
so horizontal differentiators. One that we explored was private networks, which were universally seen as being strong opportunities. Another was around optimizing networks, for instance, narrowband IoT. Of course, there are strong positions focused on verticals, but there was agreement that this was typically hard-earned. For instance, both Telia and Verizon had to acquire companies to build capabilities in transportation and fleet management, respectively. The second was about catalyzing the ecosystem of vendors, bringing together all the various constituent parts of an IoT solution. I've heard a million times over the last 10 years about IoT marketplaces, but it seems like we're actually really now getting to the point where there might be a single player able to bring together all of the constituent pieces to give somebody who's a buyer just one place where they need to go, where they can buy the connectivity, the device, the application, the data management, and so forth. And that may be operators. But it also brings me on to a third main topic. And the third big topic relates to hyperscalers that I've talked about in previous episodes. AWS, Microsoft, Google, and so forth. They may, alternatively, be the big aggregators of IoT, pulling together that hardware, software, and services elements. And lots of operators are building relationships with the likes of AWS and Microsoft, which may well define their strategies in the market for the foreseeable future. In the second panel, we dug into the concept of the smart city, or the city of the future as it was termed in the title of the panel. This is a concept which has been with us for quite a long time. Exactly what it looks like depends a lot on what perspective you have. A former colleague of mine used to equate it to the Emerald City in the Wizard of Oz. In the book, specifically, it wasn't actually emerald green. It just appeared that way because everyone wore green glasses. Certainly, it incorporates all sorts of different ideas. Ideas of digital inclusion, automation, e-government, public services, and so on. We might also fold in things like electrification, autonomous driving, and many other key technology trends. And we can't escape the fact that in many places, there's much more attention being focused on the role of cities in the wake of the current pandemic. Many of the challenges that were front of mind for city managers have been magnified by COVID-19. And therefore, many of the topics which we might have discussed on such a smart cities panel have been disrupted, accelerated, or changed in some way due to COVID. In that second panel, I was joined by representatives from the city of Stockholm, Digital Greenwich, and Rogers Communications, which have been doing a lot of work in addressing smart city opportunities in Canada. One key topic here was citizen engagement and inclusion, not least by taking advantage of the great opportunities the cell phone presents to engage with users. One example quoted was having a single platform for reporting potholes in the road so that people could see what had already been reported and therefore not phone in again. Better service, more engaging, less resource intensive. And this brought out what I thought was the most interesting finding of the panel. That for years, smart cities activities have been very technology-led, top-down. But when you switch things around and think mostly in terms of citizen engagement, it naturally follows that the use cases and implementation are much more bottom-up. Naturally, you still run into the challenges with fragmented layers of government creating friction, but it's still a much more effective approach. The other significant talking point was around co-innovation. This is no longer about having technology solutions which are lifted and shifted into any given city. It's much more about vendors providing co-creation and incubator capabilities 
to allow for the discovery of solutions. One particularly interesting thing from Stockholm related to creating virtual environments for elderly residents and others less able to get out and about. For instance, at a recreated version of a big stadium in the city. This is one way to make VR, AR, virtual reality, augmented reality about more than just gamers. It's also interesting in terms of the way that it's used COVID to explore new ways of innovating. Item two on the agenda for today's podcast is another interesting technology company that I've spoken to recently. In this case, it's Stream Analyze. It's a platform for real-time data analytics. Interestingly, it can work as a client on an edge device with only a very limited CPU and memory. 100 kilobytes of RAM is typically all you need. The approach it takes is highly interactive, allowing the developer to build data analysis models directly onto the device, thus taking account of the peculiarities of that device. The tech is really very impressive to watch. What I was really taken with, though, was the extent to which it's designed bottom-up to integrate with company systems. And I'll give you an example. You can build a financial model in Excel and then push it to the machine to, for instance, deliver information about wear and tear costs into a balance sheet. The other thing I absolutely loved was when they talk about the tech, they couch it in exactly the right terms. For instance, they talk to product managers about the product lifecycle and how their technology can help with that. A refreshing approach compared to how a lot of technology is sold. I think it's also worth delving into a couple of other news items that I noticed this week, but only briefly. One is that Digital India has adopted the 1M2M standard. If you're not familiar, 1M2M is a standards body that's developed standard interfaces for the IoT. Now, to me, that seems like a Herculean task, given the sheer scale of IoT. It seems to have had some pretty good success in smart cities. I suspect because there's more of a need there for a portable and objectively safe option for public investment. Technology choices in this instance being shaped by political and administrative considerations. Another item was that Asavi was bought by Akamai. Asavi is an old friend of the Transform Insights team and we know very well. Essentially, it does software-defined private networks for mobile devices. Really useful for IoT, but not just IoT. It's essentially focused on delivering highly secure mobile connectivity. And in that context, Akamai makes a very sensible home. Focused as it is on content delivery. Funnily enough, Akamai was the company I probably did my first consulting project for back in perhaps 2000. Focused on content delivery networks. Seems to have gone from strength to strength in the years since then. And now serves around a fifth of all web traffic. Given how much of that is going mobile, it seems an obvious and sensible tie-up. The other is slightly more unusual. It's a company called Brightwolf, which is an industrial IoT platform. And it's been bought by a systems integrator and consulting firm, Cognizant. Brightwolf is a highly specialised company with some top-class industrial IoT architects. It also has a good roster of clients. For instance, it's been working with companies like Caterpillar, which is a pretty good marker. I think it's the consulting and know-how here that's more of an attraction than the platform itself. That certainly suits Cognizant's business model. As highlighted in a recent report put out by Transformer Insights, when picking an IoT platform, such as Brightwolf, it's usually more about the skills and the fit 
rather than about the technical capabilities. And that's really the motivation behind Cognizance acquisition. They want the skills and the fit. For my final topic this week, I want to talk a bit about technology and sustainability. The ICT sector is perhaps not really thought of as a major energy consumer, but it is increasingly important. Some forecasts say that by 2030, up to 50% of global energy consumption will be by ICT. So we really need to think about the impact of some of the technology areas that we focus on. Blockchain, or distributed ledger technology more broadly, is an obvious culprit. Bitcoin alone today consumes 0.21% of world energy supply by virtue of Bitcoin mining. That puts it between Switzerland and Czech Republic as the equivalent energy use and carbon footprint of a medium-sized country. A single transaction is the equivalent to 25 days of energy use of a single household. And also, interestingly enough, equivalent to almost 800,000 transactions using Visa. When you look to the concept of sustainability, Bitcoin is by definition unsustainable. For scale, there were about 300,000 Bitcoin transactions in Q2 2020, compared to 50 billion by Visa. Bitcoin wouldn't need to take a large proportion of Visa's market share in order to dwarf the energy consumption of everything else on the planet. Then I think of AI. The energy cost of training and deploying an AI is substantial. A topic of further investigation for me there. And there must, of course, be diminishing returns. At some point, the value derived will well exceed the benefit. For instance, what kind of resources had to be ploughed into making Deep Blue a comparable chess player to Garry Kasparov? I did a little bit digging around this. Garry Kasparov is, you'll be unsurprised to hear, Russian and was born in 1963, and was beaten by Deep Blue in 1997. Over the period 1963 to 1996, inclusive, the average Russian produced 449.8 tonnes of carbon dioxide. If we assume that to hone his skills as a chess player, Gary generated a lot more, perhaps we can round that up to 1,000 tonnes of CO2. The question is, what was the collective cost of the people processing and so on, that created Deep Blue. You can bet that it was considerably more than a thousand tonnes. I guess the message is this, AI may be good, but humans are more efficient. Not in cost terms perhaps, but certainly in energy terms. In all potential use cases, we have to consider the trade-off. If AI is significantly better at, for instance, spotting cancer on scans, great. But does it pay to use it to tell if someone has selected a can of Coke versus a can of Pepsi in a store? Maybe, maybe not. But I don't see us having those conversations very much yet. And it must come. The final technology to consider is my favourite, of course, IoT. This is, if anything, a carbon sink, the tech industry's way of balancing the scales. Of course, there are some IoT applications which use more power most consumer apps, for instance, but offset that against all the energy-saving applications or preemptive maintenance or against more efficient asset utilisation, smart metering, for instance, or just smart grid infrastructure. 
Both of those are responsible for better load balancing, reduces losses and so forth. If you think about preemptive maintenance, the phrase a stitch in time saves nine could well be applied to IoT, identifying a potential problem and solving it before it becomes costly. For instance, requiring the replacement of a piece of equipment rather than just a single component. And it's not just about energy. It's about other scarce resources too. Much of precision agriculture, which is a favourite IoT application, is predicated on more efficiently using water resources. In California's Central Valley, there's a massive water shortage and the aquifers have been increasingly emptied. In part, this is because they're growing very water-intensive crops. A single almond requires five litres of water. If you can farm more precisely, you can perhaps reduce that or at least keep water used to just the five litres rather than 10 or 20. IoT tips the scales back in the direction of sustainability. I think this topic of sustainability is one that I'm going to come back to again and again. I'm particularly interested in the macro level stuff around total volume of innovation, the bearing capacity of the earth, the ability to continue as a species even. But I'll come back to that next week, I think. I mentioned at the start of this about how the unifying theme was about reintroducing the humanity into technology. In Smart Cities, my panellists were very keen to reinforce that it's by starting with citizen engagement that you make the most successful use of tech. Similarly, Stream Analyzer's approach is refreshing because it puts the human process front and centre in the adoption of technology. It absolutely makes sense to do that. And the question of sustainability is all about making sure that we're still around to enjoy the benefits of all the tech. In the last few years, we've perhaps been overly obsessed with the extent to which technology will influence human behaviour. Now perhaps things are reversed. It's more about how humans are influencing technology policy, technology strategy and technology decisions. Maybe the humans are coming. A small plug this week. Last week I spoke with Mark Thurman of the MIT Enterprise Forum for his fireside chat. It's available on YouTube. I recommend taking a look. I'll pop a link on the transcript on Wireless Noodle. Also, a request. If you've enjoyed the podcast, I'd be obliged if you could leave a review. It's much appreciated. Next week, I'll be covering more on sustainability, as well as a mix of technology news and insights. And I particularly want to take a look at the annual Eclipse Foundation IoT survey, which always makes for interesting reading. I hope you can join me. Links to some of the research that I've been referring to in this week's show, as well as the transcript of the recording, will be available on the podcast website at wirelessnoodle.com. Thank you for joining me. I've been Matt Hatton, and you've been listening to The Wireless Noodle. Thank you for listening to The Wireless Noodle. If you'd like to learn more about the research that I do on IoT, AI, and more, you can follow me on Twitter at Matty Hatton, and you can check out transformerinsights.com. That's transformer with an A.